Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Thanks for joining us on the Loving Liberty program. A big shout out to our listeners on KTalk 1640 AM in Salt Lake City. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, those who are uh, tuning in, by the way, at this time to hear the read hour, I'll just uh, clue you in. That is coming up three hours from now. Wait, wait, one, two, three, four hours from now. Sorry. <laughs> My math is off. Um, actually, it's coming up at five o'clock Mountain Time. It will be a best of program from Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. He is the president emeritus of that organization, and he is actually traveling for the next couple of weeks. So we have a couple of his best of shows lined up for un- encore performances going to be very worth your while but uh, thanks again for joining us and here's the phone number just in case you want to join the conversation 801-331-8113 so uh, i ended the last hour on on kind of a high note from the sense that uh, i felt like i was i don't know i felt like i was maybe um lighting a firecracker <laughs> and then running away and and just letting it uh, letting the, the chips fall where, where they may um what a time we live in. And and the story, for those who may not have heard it, was about uh, there. One of the makers of feminine products is now removing the female symbol from their product. It's it's always feminine pads and they're, they're taking it away. They're saying, well, you know, that's not inclusive. That is not fair to non-binary or transgender people. And I'm trying hard to understand. I really am. I'm trying to be, you know, clear and understanding about this. But it just seems like, wow, every time I think we couldn't get more woke. We we go a little bit further. My friend Kate Daly, whose whose show follows this one, actually asked me last week, where do you see us in five years? And my answer to her was, I don't know if I want to try and visualize it, because frankly, where we've come in the last five years boggles the imagination I really could not have imagined that we would be where we are today. Now, I hope what you're hearing doesn't sound like, man, I'm sure upset at all these LGBT people, blah, blah, blah. I'm content to let them be whatever they want to be. In fact, here's the thing. I would be perfectly content to simply leave them be. You go pursue happiness in your own way. But there's no reciprocation here. There's no sense of, okay, fine. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Because they won't leave me alone. And it's not all of them. Granted, it's it's, it's the really hardcore activist people who really seem to be fueling this, well, we're going to make sure you're all woke. Or destroy you if you refuse to go along with the program. There is no sense of live and let live anymore. There's only a sense of agree with me or be destroyed. And frankly, I think it's more this. This is more oppressive than when society was saying, uh, you know, keep that in the closet. You're not making any of our lives better. I think we've we've taken that pendulum and flung it hard in the other direction. And I'm not so sure that it was a good thing. So agree, disagree, feel free to, to call me up and and and, and tell me what you think. 
It, it brings to mind the Overton window, which is a concept that I've, I've tried without a lot of success to try to explain you know, to my kids. Hey, what is the Overton window? But there's an excellent article on this uh, about what the Overton window is, as well as uh, how to pry it open. This is from Charles Hugh Smith, and it's uh, published on OfTwoMinds.com. Now, he says, if you're really interested in finding solutions to humanity's pressing problems, you need to start helping us pry open the Overton window. And, and you're going to see how this applies to the topic that I've led off with here in just a moment, in that uh, right now, there are people trying to keep that window as narrow as possible so that nobody can, can be free. Nobody can think outside the box, so to speak. He says the Overton window describes the spectrum of concepts, policies or approaches that could be publicly discussed without being ridiculed or marginalized as too radical, unworkable, crazy, etc. The narrower the Overton window, the greater the impoverishment of public dialogue and the fewer the solutions available. Okay, so I'm going to take that back to uh, the the idea of, uh, for instance, transgender athletes. We talked in the last hour about this cyclist from Canada. Rachel McKinnon, who apparently was born a male, now identifies as a female, but went through puberty as a male, developed a fully developed male body, and then made the transition to female, but is killing it in women's cycling. Set a record this year, won last year, won this year, and is using that, uh, that new identity as a sledgehammer to bludgeon anybody who says, hey, is this really fair? To the women who were born women who want to compete in cycling. And some of these activists like Rachel McKinnon are keeping that Overton window unnecessarily narrow to make sure that other approaches can't be discussed. My friend John called in and said, why not just have a transgender league? That seems fair. Because we're not talking about someone who is either holy committed to male or wholly committed to female. I know they say, well, I identify as a female, so therefore that's what I am, but physiology doesn't lie. And the muscular, the muscular and skeletal advantages are pretty tough to deny as well. Hence, that's why you see some of these transgender athletes mopping up in track and field events and cycling and wrestling and so forth. And we're supposed to pretend that, oh, there's, there's really nothing to see here. Why, it's just, you know, totally normal. It's, you'd probably arrive at this walking down the street. No, it's being forced on us. So let's step aside from the uh, gender identity issue for a moment and talk about the socioeconomic political system that's unraveling, despite those who hold power in that current system devoting all of their energy to try to close the Overton window so that the only approved narratives and policies that support the status quo are allowed into the public sphere. This is what Charles Hugh Smith is talking about. He says everything outside this narrow band of status quo supportive narratives is immediately disparaged as fake news, Kremlin talking points or other highly charged accusations designed to close the Overton window. A process Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman called manufacturing consent. If no outside ideas are allowed, people accept the status quo as all there is and all there possibly can be. I just saw a very good example of this from one of the preeminent news stations in my home state of Utah. 
reporting on uh, they rep- they actually reprinted an AP story talking about how some government uh, land workers and they're talking BLM and Forest Service people feel threatened by what's going on in the American West. They feel like people are angry at them and people don't don't respect them. And and here's here's how they're keeping that Overton window closed. The pictures that accompany it were pictures of Ammon Bundy at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Pictures of Cliven Bundy and his wife walking out of the courthouse when he was walking out of there a free man in January of 2018. This is an example of the, uh, the misbehavior and the criminal activities that are making these people feel threatened when they're just trying to do their jobs. <laughs> the crocodile tears falling like rain. How is this manufacturing consent? Well, it's because the story takes this overly sympathetic view that, oh, well, these people who get dirty looks when they're just gassing up their trucks or whatever, you know, they've done nothing wrong. They're just people trying to do their jobs. They're not the policymakers. Come on. They're just guarding the camp. They're not the ones who ordered that everybody be brought there in, in cattle cars. All right. I'm using hyperbole to make a point, though. You can't be a good person. If you agree to do things that are harmful to other people or to the rights of other people. And just because some government bureaucrat says, yeah, you have permission to do this, doesn't make it right. You give people that kind of latitude, you end up with Dan Love, who makes a kill list of people that he would like to see killed. And by the way, he was pretty good. Of course, he was pretty good at, you know, pressuring people and ruining their lives to the point that he could coerce them and and force them into a situation where they felt suicide was the only solution. Something which he apparently got a kick out of and would joke about. But instead, we're told, well, you know, it's because of the Bundys and because because of what they did. That's why these good, noble, poor people working for the government have to fear for what they're doing. Look, it's exaggerating the situation, to put it mildly. Yeah, there are some hard feelings out West here. Why? Because there are policies that are actively dismantling people's livelihoods, depriving them of their property and harming them and threatening them either with violence or with legal complications that will bankrupt them. And we're supposed to pretend that because that originates with government, oh, but it's all good and it's just, you know, this is just the will of the people being carried out. It's not. And to sit there and show the pictures of people who were acquitted in Oregon and then let free with their case dismissed with prejudice in Nevada because of the intense misconduct on the part of government, not just a technicality, illegalities. But we're supposed to feel sympathy for those poor, oppressed workers. Sorry, KSL, but that's how you manufacture consent. And it's a pretty crappy thing to do. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Yeah, I may have been a tad strident in that last uh, segment, but, you know, it frustrates me bad enough that uh, that news media has become just kind of a an agenda-driven platform to maintain the status quo, to, to find favor with those in power. And that frustrates me. But, but you know what frustrates me even more is I read the comments on articles like the one I was referencing that that shows how how utterly disconnected from reality so many people are. They have no clue. They don't even understand that the narrative they've been presented is so woefully incomplete. 
And just like a shop full of parrots, they're just bah! repeating whatever they think, you know, makes sense. Without ever bothering to ask any of the deeper questions of well, what else was going on there. What wasn't included in that article? I don't have all the answers, but, uh, you know, I've had plenty of practice in, in learning to spot when there's a deficiency or where there's there's some kind of a, a slant that's intended to shepherd all of us into. Now, this is what you're supposed to feel. This is what you're supposed to think rather than just giving us facts and letting us come to our own conclusions. And bringing it back to the article by Charles Hugh Smith on the Overton window. Keeping that Overton window narrow benefits those in power, especially the people who are legally looting the system. Now, he says there's another source of a narrow Overton window, and that is the cultural, social and political elites have no new ideas. So they tend to cling to doing more of what's failed, which means they rely on the past successes of their now failing strategies in order to cement their power. Michael Grant described how this failure of imagination and devotion to the past leads inevitably to decline and collapse. And folks, that is what we are seeing happen around us. Michael Grant's excellent account, The Fall of the Roman Empire, a book that Charles Hugh Smith has been recommending since 2009, says, quote, There was no room at all in these ways of thinking for the novel, apocalyptic situation which had now arisen, a situation which needed solutions as radical as itself. The status quo attitude is a complacent acceptance of things as they are, without a single new idea. This acceptance was accompanied by greatly excessive optimism about the present and future, even when the end was only 60 years away and the empire was already crumbling fast. Rutilius continued to address the spirit of Rome with the same supreme assurance. This blind adherence to the ideas of the past ranks high among the principal causes of the downfall of Rome. If you were sufficiently lulled by these traditional fictions, there was no call to take any practical first aid measures at all. Does that give you chills the way it does me? Because that sounds like it would apply very much to the attitudes we see being portrayed by many of the ruling elite in modern America. And Charles Hugh Smith confirms this describes the U.S. and, in fact, the entire global economy to a T. All the approved solutions are retreads from 90 years ago. Fiscal stimulus, now called MMT, lowering interest rates via central bank manipulation, now called quantitative easing, increasing social welfare, now called universal basic income or UBI. All solutions from the early 1930s when the global economic system fell into its last great crisis. Now, he points out that all these will fail is already baked in because this isn't 1930. The situation is fundamentally different, but the generals, like the generals who obsess over how to best fight the last war, the system's Overton window is stuck in 1930. The most important job of the alternative media is to pry open that Overton window so new solutions become possible. He says, we've been trained to believe that technology is our savior and that new solutions arise only from technology. But the reality is technology itself won't solve economic, social, political problems. At best, it will enable new solutions. In other words, there is no teleology in technology that magically causes technology to generate a sustainable economy or distribute political power equitably. We have to set those goals and use technology to serve economic, social, and 
political innovations. And he points out, as I often say here, if you don't change the way money is created and distributed, you change nothing. Because the way money is created and distributed defines everything else in the way the system functions. Now, he says, for his part, he's created a labor-backed currency that's unlike any other system in the world for creating and distributing, quote, money. And he describes it in his system, uh, in his book, rather, a uh, radically beneficial world. And also in an essay titled The Architecture of a Labor-Backed Cryptocurrency System, The Largent. And by the way, there are links in this article. I will include them in the show notes so you can check them out for yourself. But he says in the three years since the publication of the book and essay, he's gained a new appreciation for the potential for privately issued paper money that is backed by transactions of goods and services. Now, the advent of a private sector, in other words, a non-state blockchain currency like Bitcoin, has cracked open the Overton window to a refreshing degree. But he says blockchain cryptocurrencies are only one of many potential systems of money that would better serve humanity than the doomed to implode fiat currencies issued by elite dominated governments and central banks. So technology is enabling new solutions, but only if we can conceptualize those solutions and pry open the Overton window to let them into the public sphere. Just a quick aside here from my vantage point. That's not the kind of thing you ask permission to do. Because those right now who hold those reins of power, who depend on all the old ways of doing things, what do you suppose their reaction is going to be? If you were to go to the central bank and say, hey, how cool would it be if we were able to come up with a system that would make you guys obsolete? <laughs> what do you suppose their reaction would be? Yeah, they, they would kill it quickly. And probably those who were, were trying to promote it quickly. Because it would threaten their grasp on power. Charles Hugh Smith says, if you're truly interested in finding solutions to humanity's pressing problems, then start helping us pry open the Overton window. Those who dogmatically demand we all agree with their 1930 solutions and who marginalize any and all new ideas that threaten the status quo power structure, they're the problem, not the solution. And to this end, he actually has a book out called Will You Be Richer or Poorer? Power and AI in a Traumatized World. But the whole purpose of that book, or the whole point of that book, is prying open the Overton window. By the way, there's a pretty nifty graph that he shows here that shows the acceleration of technological adoption curves from 1867 to 2017. I thought this was pretty neat. Because it shows you the years until a particular technology was used by 25% of the American population. So starting in about, what, 1870 or thereabouts, that's when you saw electricity come into common use or start to come into use. It took 46 years before 25% of the American population was using or had, had adopted um, electricity and was using it regularly. Telephone, introduced in 1877, took 35 years before you started to see phones in use among at least 25% of the population. Radio came along in 1897, 31 years later, before it became 
used by 25% of the population. Television, introduced in 1927, took 26 years before 25% of the population was using it. Now, let's skip ahead a few years. The PC came along uh, about 1976. It took 16 years before it was in common use by 25% of the population. Cell phone, that came along in, uh, what, about the mid-80s? 13 years before 25% of the people were using it. Internet, seven years. That's after coming along in about 1980, or about 1990, rather. Social media, that'd be about 2003, 2004. Took five years. That curve is getting shorter. So maybe there is some hope. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join me today. I'm Brian Hyde, and the number is 801-331-8113 if you'd like to uh, join in the conversation. I know I've kind of been all over the place, but, uh, man, I get on a roll, and I just can't stop myself. All right, where to go next? Actually, I've been wanting to share this one for a couple of days. Uh, Barry Brownstein, one of my one of my favorite writers because of his unique and very positive look on so many things, had a great article, although I have to admit, I approached this one with the sense that, oh boy, this looks like some hard truth might be ahead. The title is, Has Science Discovered a Cure for Obesity? So yeah, I'm admitting I'm, I'm carrying a few more pounds than I would like to, and and it's fully my own fault. I can't blame, well, it's genetics, or, you know, it's big bones, or I've got a glandular problem. No, I just, I like to eat. And I happen to live in a time and a place where there is an abundance of yummy things to eat. Uh, Cooking food on my pit barrel cooker is one of my love languages. It's how I show love for my family. It's how I show love for my neighbors or torment them, depending on, you know, who's commenting on, hey, what are you cooking over there? (laughs) Because that smell really does carry through the neighborhood. But here's what Barry Brownstein had to say about uh, science and whether science has discovered a cure for obesity. He starts by pointing out that life expectancy is falling in America. And as you might have guessed, the obesity epidemic is one of the causes. He says, we've all heard alarming stories. We've seen the evidence. An astonishing two thirds of adults, nearly 30 and nearly 30 percent of children are either overweight or obese. Obesity related illness is costing America one hundred ninety point two billion with a B or nearly 21 percent of annual medical spending in the United States. Yeah, it's kind of hard to excuse that as just a glitch. That sounds like a real problem. Here's more evidence. He talks about how adult onset diabetes is now so common in children that the name of the illness was actually changed to type 2 diabetes. Each year, the National Institutes of Health reports the prevalence of type 2 diabetes is increasing by 4.8% among children and teens. And then there's the astonishing prediction by researchers at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, that one in three children born in the United States in 2000 
will likely develop type 2 diabetes sometime in their lifetime unless they get more exercise and improve their diets. Now, Barry Brownstein says, ask most people and they will have a theory about obesity. Some stigmatize the obese, saying, well, they lack willpower. Others believe particular nutrients such as fats, carbs or sugars are to blame for our alarming obesity pandemic. Ellen Ruppel-Shell reports in her essay, A New Theory of Obesity in the October 2019 Scientific American. She says those who believe that carbs are the culprit. I'm sorry, I got to go back here for a second. I want to make sure she says particular nutrients such as carbs, fats and sugars are to blame Uh, Some other people believe that particular nutrients like carbs, fats, and sugars are to blame for the alarming obesity pandemic. But Brownstein says those who believe that carbs are the culprit might gravitate towards a keto or a paleo diet, thinking they can safely binge on a pint of Halo Top. Others believing that fats are the culprit might try a low-fat vegan diet, but then innocently partake of junk food binges on fat-free snack wells. Well, Shell's essay relates findings from multiple studies revealing a new theory of obesity. As nutrition researcher Kevin Hall started his research, he too felt certain that he would find that carbs were behind our obesity crisis. But instead, he found obesity is caused by how much ultra-processed food is in our diet, not the percentage of carbs or fats we eat. And here's how Shell explains Hall's work. Quote, Hall's study suggests that a dramatic shift in how we make the food we eat pulling ingredients apart and then reconstituting them into things like frosted snack cakes, ready-to-eat meals from the supermarket freezer, bears the brunt of the blame. This ultra-processed food, he and a number of a growing number of other scientists think, disrupts gut-brain gut signals that normally tell us that we've had enough, and this failed signaling leads to overeating, end quote. See, that's not something I want to hear. Why? Well, because... I'm looking for a convenient way to fix something for dinner. The easier, the better. And I also, you know, want to be able to enjoy my food. How much is enough? Well, just one bite more. Which almost always ends up being, oh, I wish I had just turned down that last bite or that last little helping. How did Louis C.K. say it? You know, how far into the meal, uh, you know, how far into eating your meal are you, uh, are you through? You know, how are you done eating? He's like, well, the meal's not over. Until I hate myself. (laughs) Yep, been there and done that. Barry Brownstein says, Hall studies found that people ate hundreds more calories of ultra-processed than unprocessed foods when they were encouraged to eat as much or as little of each type as they desired. And the result was significant weight gain. And ultra-processed foods are ubiquitous in our diets, Shell reports. Again, from from her writing, quote, an estimated 58 percent of the calories we consume and nearly 90 percent of all added sugars come from industrial food formulations made up mostly or entirely of ingredients, whether nutrients, fiber or chemical additives that are not found in a similar form and combination in nature. End quote. Whoa. So as Brownstein explains, some ultra-processed foods such as candy and soda, I mean, that's obvious, right? Other processed foods might seem like benign or even healthful products when you talk about commercial breads or processed meats, flavored yogurts and energy bars, but they're all ultra-processed. Reading food labels, you can often identify ultra-processed foods by long lists of ingredients that you would never have at home. 
synthetic flavors and colors, emulsifiers, preservatives, and thickeners. He says, recently, my wife and I were hungry after a long hike. We stopped at the supermarket and grabbed what we thought looked like a healthy option, organic tortellini. After ravenously eating our dinner, we were dismayed to find that cellulose was on the list of ingredients of our ultra-processed healthy meal. In home kitchens, he asks, who adds wood pulp to thicken their food? He says, were we to make this ultra-processed healthy product a regular part of our diet, the pounds would soon pile on. Now, Shell also reports on studies in neuroscience that explain the link between obesity and the consumption of ultra-processed food. Dana Small is a neuroscientist at Yale University. Small's research supports the theory that ultra-processed foods disrupt the gut-brain signals that influence food reinforcement and intake overall. So if you eat an apple and its sweet taste signals the body to expect and prepare for that calorie load, but drink diet soda with artificial sweeteners and you get the anticipation and experience of sweet taste without the energy boost. And small makes clear the consequences. Disrupt that gut-brain signal, and we will keep eating. Small says when the brain does not get the proper metabolic signal from the gut, the brain really doesn't know that the food is even there. Here's another good rule of thumb. Barry Brownstein says if the food goes down easy, beware, you probably will overeat. The pint of Halo Top may be low in calories compared to regular ice cream, but you will keep eating other food. He says, while vigilant about calories, we've lost track that all calories are not the same. Small says, we've created all these hyper-palatable foods filled with fat, sugar, salt, and additives. And we clearly prefer these foods. But these foods don't necessarily provoke satiety. I'm not saying it correctly. They don't satiate us. (laughs) What they seem to provoke is cravings. I mean, didn't Lay's potato chips actually have the bet you can't eat just one? I seem to recall that being one of their uh, selling points. Barry Brownstein says, if you prefer ultra-processed foods, you live in a golden age. But if you want to change your eating habits, you also live in a golden age. Supermarkets have large, fresh produce sections, large meat, poultry, and fish counters, and aisles of whole grains and beans. And now there's the miraculous Instant Pot to help you cook your unprocessed ingredients in record time. Making the change takes the willingness to increase your cooking skills and the willingness to wash pots each night. And he suggests enlist the family. The family that cooks together, bonds together, and learns lifelong skills together. With the assistance of well-designed kitchen step stools, even young children can safely be in the kitchen. And he says you might find the improvements in your health and well-being are more than worth the effort. You know, I'm at a point where I'm, I'm recognizing I got to make some changes. I'm pretty sure my check engine light came on here uh, probably within the last couple of years. And I'm getting to the point where I know I've got to do something. I've got to change something. Eating and the way that I eat, that's the, the most logical place for me to begin. To that end, I'm going to second something here that Barry Brownstein has suggested, and that is that Instant Pot is really a godsend. Now, I'm not getting any kind of recompense from them. I'm not pimping Instant Pot because, you know, they're a sponsor of the show. But uh, sometimes I wish they were. It's a time saver, but the cool thing is you can put good, wholesome ingredients in it, and it will help you prepare a good home-cooked meal 
in a pretty abbreviated amount of time, and it doesn't have that steep of a learning curve. Something to think about. Maybe you'll join me on my journey for better health because i got to get that check engine light uh, to go back out. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. Oh, I've thrown a lot of topics out today. If I need to be set straight on any of them, feel free. Again, 801-331-8113. Paul Rosenberg is a writer who I would recommend to anybody looking for just a little bit different slant on the world around us. It's not a big deal. It's not, to, you know, it's not like he's he's looking at it through LSD colored lenses. But he definitely sees things in a way that I don't hear very many people express. And actually, it's in kind of a positive and refreshing way. So when I saw his latest article, how the Google model leads to socialism, I thought, oh, OK, this is worth a read. And I don't know if you get this sense, you know, with the, the upcoming election next year. But socialism has made a lot of gains. A lot of people really seem to have embraced the possibility that, oh, no, it can work. This can work, notwithstanding, you know, what uh, what you see happening in places like Venezuela or places like uh, North Korea. Well, now, Brian, that's actually communism. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a cousin of socialism. It's collectivism. Whichever choice you want. Both of them are based on collectivism. One is just a much more aggressive form of collectivism. The other one is taking a meandering path to get there. But they both start and operate from the premise that someone knows better than you do how to run your own life. And that's a premise that has to be challenged and and thankfully can be challenged. And it doesn't mean that if we just can elect the right person, why we'll fix this. Most of the solutions are going to be found outside of the political realm. That's the good news. But listen to this take on how the Google model leads to socialism. This made a whole lot of sense to me. Paul Rosenberg writes, there has been a lot of concern about the resurgence of socialism lately, and understandably so. But he says there is one aspect of it, and perhaps an important one that I haven't seen elsewhere. Here it is. The socialists, we must admit, have two big things going for them. Number one, they are excellent at complaining. Number two, they are able to convince people their system will solve every problem. So what that means, of course, is that they're selling magic to people who want magic to be real. Now, before you get to, you know, all high and mighty, well, you got to be pretty naive to believe in magic. Paul Rosenberg reminds us, uh, most all of us, at some point in our lives, at one time or another, believed we, we either believed or we wanted magic to be real. Maybe it was when you were a little kid and you outgrew it fairly quickly. Some people never outgrow it. But for the sake of empathy, you need to remember, we've all wished that magic was real at one point or another. Socialism, he says, then, is a religion. And it's operated by a clergy that habitually becomes so disconnected from feeling that it sends its flocks into torture 
and death. Now, he says it should also be noted that the present rise of socialism, particularly among the young, is a stunning condemnation of government schools. That socialism, the deadliest ideology in all of human history, could find such a toehold a mere 30 years after its fall. Well, he says in a more honest world, government operated schools would be consigned to the trash heap of history. Now, I have to offer a quick aside here because I don't want people to make the mistake of thinking, oh, so this Paul Rosenberg is totally against education. Back it up for a minute. And think about what he's saying. The deadliest ideology in all of human history has found a toehold in our government schools a mere 30 years after the Iron Curtain fell. That doesn't trouble you? Or does that, that make, do, do you, were you raised to believe that, you know, the only place that education really can happen is within a government school? Given how many of us were educated, or I should say schooled in government schools, it would be understandable if that was the slant that we took away. After all, what system is going to teach about itself in a way that doesn't flatter itself? And yes, then with the advent of public education, the sun began to rise every morning and the birds sang sweetly on the windowsill every day. The people who uh, write the checks, you know, you better believe the textbooks are going to fa- are going to favor them. Those textbooks are going to portray whoever is in power at that time in a favorable light. But I like his point in a more honest world. Government operated schools would be consigned to the trash heap of history. We wouldn't stop educating. We would innovate and we would find better ways to do it. And we would privatize it. Well, then it's all about money, is it really? You're trying to tell me that government schools aren't all about money? Why do they need those little behinds sitting in those seats for this many minutes of every day? It's for funding. At least that's how it works in my home state of Utah. They have to have those kids in those seats to get the weighted per pupil unit of funding that that is due to the schools. Without those bodies, without those numbers... Why they might be missing out on some of that funding. But let's get back to Google. Paul Rosenberg says, having made our introductory points, let's look at how Google can honestly be blamed for making socialism popular. He says, I've described the surveillance capitalism model of Google and Facebook as a parasitic model. And he says, I stand behind that description. It's a dishonest and ultimately destructive model of organization. And its application is leading people to socialism. Now, he says, to be specific, what leads people to socialism is a belief based upon observation that magic works. And Google has clearly taught the young that they can get something for nothing, which is pretty close to the definition of magic. What Google, Facebook and their acolytes have done is to create the illusion of free stuff, free email, free search, free storage, free translation. And the rest are not really free, but they appear that way. So Google promotes the free side of the exchange at the center stage under bright lighting. The other side of the exchange, however, takes place behind curtains and in the shadows, just out of view. That's where they gather oceans of data that are used for personalized manipulation. 
Now, he says, we can't honestly believe that Google takes in well over $100 billion a year simply by giving things away, can we? And in fact, we know that they manipulate their users and want to manipulate them more. Why else would they make sure you have no choice but to give them so much personal information? That's kind of starting to sting, isn't it? (laughs) Billions of dollars worth of manipulation aside, he says the reason Google leads millions forward or toward socialism is because they teach people that the unreal can indeed be real. There is no such thing as a free service. Somewhere, someone is always paying. But Google has convinced the world that free is real, that magic can be real. And that plays directly into the hands of the socialists. So when you hear social, put your hand on your wallet. Because it's even money that someone is trying to snooker you. Hearing social is a good indication that you're about to encounter a clever bypass of reality. Social justice, for example, is payback based upon the assertions of propagandists. There are reasons we've held trials before assigning penalties because we're trying the facts. Social justice just leapfrogs right past them. Socialized medicine is another example. It involves a belief that economics won't apply to a large enough group. Now, he says, I could go on, but there's no point. All of these revolve around magical imaginings. And while we'd like things to be easier, socialist dreams end in starvation. At this point, those who are unfamiliar may wish to inquire about the millions of people who were knowingly starved or otherwise murdered by Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, and other sellers of this particular belief in magic. So the bottom line is, The free stuff providers, Google and Facebook leading the way, have taught the young that free is possible, that magic is real. And after being trained in that day in and day out over nearly all their conscious lives, should we really be shocked that socialism's appeals to magic have found new ground in which to grow? What a thought-provoking way to approach Google and socialism. I'll have a link to this article posted in the show notes. You can look it up on the uh, on the podcast. Go to LovingLiberty.net. Check it out for yourself. Do want to mention that Ammo.com is one of our sponsors here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Check them out not only for your uh, rifle, shotgun, handgun, or rimfire ammo, but grab yourself some intellectual ammo while you're on their website, Ammo.com. They have a terrific library of very relevant articles about a number of different fascinating topics. Well worth your time. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. At Walgreens, we know that you're...